Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Kate Floros, a clinical associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Today on the podcast is the first of two episodes with UIC political science PhD candidate Semi Patan on Turkish politics. In this first episode, Semi and I discuss the May 2023 presidential elections in Turkey, which took two rounds and resulted in the re-election of incumbent president Recep Tayyip Erdogan. We also discussed the concept of competitive authoritarianism, Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, the AKP, and some changes in Turkish politics since Erdogan came to power in 2003. As with any conversation, we veered off on some unplanned tangents and didn't always get back to the original question. I'm going to break into the interview a few times to explain some terms or provide answers to questions I asked but weren't answered. I hope you enjoy part one of two of my conversation about Turkish politics with Semi Patan. So let's get started in the politics classroom, recorded on June 1st, Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. One note I want to make at the beginning of the episode is about a reference to the Kurds in Turkey. The Kurds are an ethnic minority located mostly in the southeast part of Turkey near the borders with Syria and Iraq. For almost as long as Turkey has existed as an independent state, Kurds in Turkey have wanted to create an independent Kurdistan and secede from the Turkish state. The armed group fighting for this outcome is the PKK, or the Kurdish Workers' Party, which has been designated a terrorist organization by Turkey, the EU, US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Because of the security threat of the PKK, Kurdish regions of Turkey face increased repression, whether people are supporters of the PKK or not. Okay. On to my interview with UIC political science PhD candidate, Semi Patan. Semi Patan, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Thank you for having me. This is your second appearance, although the first time you were on, we were live. It was a live radio show at the time, and uh, we talked a little bit about Turkey then, but now, now you're on the podcast version, so thanks for coming back. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. I don't know if you remember, but the other guest on the episode, Keith, was ill when we recorded that episode. And I understand that you have been ill. So maybe I am bringing illness upon UIC graduate students by inviting them on the podcast. Maybe I should stop doing that. Yeah, there's that correlation there for sure. Maybe we just we just get so excited. And- oh, that's it. Yeah. I'm sure that's what it is. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically today is because of the recent presidential election that just concluded in Turkey on May 28th. 
And this was the second round of an election. The first round, neither candidate or none of the three candidates, I guess, achieved a majority. And so it had to go to a runoff in which President Erdogan was reelected with a little over 52% of the votes. And in the West, there was a lot of speculation that Erdogan might lose this election because of a bunch of factors, which which we'll talk about. But first, can you just talk about what the issues were at stake in this election and why it necessitated a runoff? Sure. So I think it is important to lay out the context here. Turkey is... uh, you know, what we call a competitive authoritarian regime, which means that uh, you have an authoritarian regime that basically um, killed every potential reason to call this a, a democracy. So in that sense, it's a completely authoritarian regime. But we still have real competitive elections uh, in that opposition theoretically, could win these elections and unseat uh, the incumbent. So it's not sham elections, but they are highly unfair. The playing field is heavily skewed in favor of the government. They rely on state resources. Uh, They deny media time uh, for the opposition. Uh, So it is very, very difficult for the opposition to actually win the elections. But they also not uh, determined in advance. So they are real elections. So in that sense, that was why the opposition was hopeful to begin with, because there is an actual chance to win them. And the issues that were at stake in this election was first and foremost, what the uh, direction of this country uh, is going to be. Is it going to head more authoritarian or is this a chance for a regime change uh, through an electoral victory by the opposition after 20 years of the AKP government in Turkey? And given the economic uh, conditions in Turkey, hyperinflation, I would say, currency crisis, uh, decreasing salaries and real wages, uh, rising unemployment levels, Add to that, uh, there is a big immigration issue in Turkey mm. due to the civil war in Syria and the resulting uh, you know, refugee flow. So uncontrolled borders were another uh, issue. So add to that the recent earthquakes in Turkey uh, and very weak government response. So going to the elections in this context, opposition was very hopeful. So we did as a critiques of the regime, we need to expect opposition to actually win this time. Uh, they had higher chance in comparison to previous elections, but that did not happen. Okay, so just uh, because this is a podcast where we try to explain politics, can you talk just really briefly what authoritarian features the government has adopted in the president, we'll we'll talk about maybe how we got here, but can you just talk a little bit about the authoritarian part of the competitive authoritarianism and what features we would be looking at to make that judgment? Yeah, sure. Erdogan is a strong man. So uh, particularly after being elected as a president and, uh, you know, transition uh, to the presidential system back in 2017, 
through a referendum and actually uh, happening in 2018 with the presidential elections. Erdogan has garnered a lot of power just for himself and his personality. So the authoritarian nature of this regime is a very top-down way of governing. Uh, there is not really an input by the parliament. Uh, there is not m- much input by the opposition. But more importantly, it's also a very repressive regime politically, right? Uh, so it denies certain groups even fair entry to the system. That is usually the uh, Kurdish party. Mm-hmm. They are stripped of political representation in, uh, you know, southeastern parts of Turkey. Elected mayors are removed from the office due to allegations of aiding and abetting terrorism. Um, and they are replaced by government trusts. And also there is a problem with freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. So just bringing all that together, it is a highly restrictive political environment in terms of voicing one's opinion. And uh, media, of course, need to be mentioned here. There is a heavily controlled media environment in Turkey. The government, not directly, but controls almost 90% of uh, the media organization. That doesn't mean that Turkey does not have some strong opposition media. They do. But compared to what the government has in their arsenal, it's uh, very minimal. And a lot of people tune into it just by default to these government-run or government mouthpiece uh, media organizations. And there is no room for opposition to kind of tell their own story and respond to uh, baseless government allegations about opposition cozying up to various terrorist organizations that the government come up with every other day. So in this environment, it's, of course, very difficult for the opposition to reach out to its own constituency. But I also do not want to paint a picture where uh, one imagines there's no room for opposition politics or criticism is not voiced. Of course, there is room. The social media helps a lot and are millions of critical people, including me. Uh, So you get to do that. That's not particularly criminalized unless you show signs of, again, what the government could determine as, uh, you know, showing sympathies towards a terrorist organization. So within that kind of restricted environment, you still have opportunities to voice your criticism. But the problem is the reach, right? You don't really have equal access to these platforms. So you don't really end up having this uh, wider reach that the government has. Uh, So this is basically the authoritarian uh, nature of uh, Turkish government. And uh, at uh, the competitive aspect, as I told you, is basically just the elections. Okay, great. Thank you for that. So let's talk about this election and why a runoff was forced. Mm -hmm. So this was the First time uh, the Turkish politics had actually seen a runoff. Mm. Yeah, this is the first time the elections were hold, uh, held in this system. Uh, not in this system, sorry, but that was the 2018 elections, but Erdogan was able to get the majority of the votes in the first round. So this was the first time Erdogan was denied that in the first round. So it's uh, it was a very historic moment. I think it is really important uh, to understand in such an authoritarian regime the opposition's uh, resilience, right? So despite having all these resources available to the government, 
for 20 years and all the you know incumbent advantage that we know of you know, from democracies, Erdogan could not manage to get uh, more than 50% of the votes in the first round. So that's why uh, the opposition was able to force a runoff, even though the expected outcome was that opposition would at least go to the runoff uh, being ahead of uh, the current government. Mm. But that was not the case. So a lot of people were disappointed and let down. Okay, so in the can you say the name of the main opposition candidate? (laughs) (laughs) I try very hard not to be so Anglo in how but I I can't pronounce things. No, it's a difficult one. So his full name is Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. Uh, oh so I'm sure a lot of Western uh, media organizations would just refer to him at, like with his first name, Kemal, uh, until they get used to how to pronounce uh, his name. But th- now they don't have to really worry about him because he <laughs> <laughs> did not okay. win the elections. So, so say it one more time. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. But I wouldn't really worry about it. Okay. It's, it's a difficult so, one. <laughs> so in the first round... He received fewer votes than incumbent President Erdogan. He did. But Erdogan received fewer than 50% of the votes because yeah. there was a third candidate. So could there have been like seven candidates, but there were three? Or well, like, to explain to me, you know, because obviously in the United States, we have a two-party system, but then you have these other like independent or other party candidates who typically don't do very well. Right. Is is that kind of similar in Turkey? Can you kind of just give us the rundown on on how open the process is to multiple parties, et cetera? Absolutely. Um, so it's not really similar to um, the U.S. because, again, Turkey uh, has a tradition of parliamentary democracy, and that has changed rather recently. Uh, so a parliamentary democracy, you have as long as you don't have the first past the post system, uh, you end up having many different parties representing different cleavages uh, or different ideologies. And Turkey is the same in that sense. We have many political parties uh, that join uh, or uh, you know competed in this election. So the parliamentary election uh, ballot was long. Uh, it was even you know it was hard to find your own party that you supported. So it would, there were so many parties listed in those. So you have the you know parliamentary elections that took place simultaneously with the presidential elections the first round. And for the presidential elections we had actually four candidates. Mm. Yes. So two we already discussed one was the candidate of this ultra-nationalist alliance, and they fielded their own candidate because they were not really happy with the both ideological positions and also policy platforms of either candidate. And they received a lot of criticisms, to be honest, because the opposition was trying to win these elections in the first round and mm. be done with it. Uh, so they assume this reduced their chances of doing so. So one was that. And the other one was uh, the presidential candidate of the opposition in the previous elections in 2018, Muharrem Ince. And he was uh, the candidate of and a member of the main opposition party. But then they had a fallout with the leader, the chairman of uh, the main opposition party, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, and he founded his own party. 
and decided to run for the elections. And Mohammad Reminje later dropped out. Mm. So a lot of those protest votes actually went to this third candidate, who is the Ultranationalist Alliance, and he received around 5% of the votes in the first round. And what was the voter turnout like between the two rounds? Was it comparable or was there a huge drop off or an uptick in the second round? There was a slight uh, decrease, but I don't think it was that important. The thing is, we had close to 90% turnout in the Mm. first round. Uh, It was around 89%. So it's really hard to top that. Sure. For natural reasons, people just like, you know, you end up having 10% of society having different reasons not to vote. They could be sick, they could be away, whatever. Uh, So it's really difficult to go beyond that 90%. Uh, So in that sense, there wasn't a tick and a slight degrees, which was kind of expected given the opposition was let down and disappointed. Mm. There will be some apathy from uh, the opposition side. And some expected that maybe the the ruling party alliance, not the AKP, but the other nationalist party supporting Erdogan, their supporter analysts expected maybe some of them would not show up uh, to vote because they wouldn't be as excited to vote for Erdogan again. So there was and definitely an expectation for a slight uh, decrease in the turnout, and uh, there was, but it was nothing really significant. Though in Turkey, the opposition supporters are more likely to not show up in mm. elections. So every increase in turnout, on average, holding every, everything else constant, usually works for the opposition's favor. I was looking up some numbers in preparation for our conversation, and there is a huge expat Turkish diaspora, and lots of people outside of Turkey also voted. They did, including myself. I voted from here in Chicago, and I was actually for the runoff. I signed up uh, to be a ballot official for the opposition, and I was the observer and helped with the voting process. And this was at the consulate in Chicago? This was at the consulate, yes. So it's, uh, they usually uh, you know, set up shop in consulates, but they also have, depending on the size of the diaspora, end up having ad hoc ballots in places that are closer to the uh, constituents, to the voters, but may not have the consulate there. Uh, so there were cases like that. For example, in Long Island, we had mobile ballot boxes where people could just vote. Uh, and there is an interesting dynamic or uh, voting pattern uh, when it comes to Turkish diaspora. If you look at the electoral map, all of the Europe and some of the Middle East is painted by the government's color, which is usually represented either by yellow or orange. Uh, so the European diaspora heavily votes for Erdogan. So you know he can count on uh, them for supporting his candidacy. And the reason is that the diaspora in Europe is a result of 
the migration from Turkey to Germany and some other countries back in 1960s through some agreements between uh, the two countries because Germany needed uh, a lot of workers and Turkey had a lot of unemployed people with a uh, low skill uh, set back then. So they were supposed to be temporary. But uh, with migration, you know, things are rarely temporary. So right. they did not come back. And so you see this uh, second and even third generation diaspora voting for Erdogan. And, you know, these people tend to be more conservative. Uh, they tend to be more religious. So they are a natural constituency for Erdogan. When it comes to North America, however, uh, or UK, they heavily vote for the opposition. In the United States, uh, for instance, voted 80% for the opposition candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and this is also expected because the diaspora in Turkey, uh, in uh, the US, and also in the UK, they migrated to these countries later on. And these tend to be more educated and highly skilled people who tend to vote for uh, the opposition. So it's always interesting to see this identity-based dynamic play out in diaspora votes. Interesting. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm speaking with UIC political science PhD candidate Semi Patan. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, which is the party that Erdogan uh, leads. And I also want to talk a little bit about when the AKP, it was founded in 2001, they fielded candidates in the 2002 elections and won a majority of the parliament. But Erdogan couldn't become prime minister in 2002 because he was barred from office for reading a poem that judges felt was too Islamist. Correct. So can you talk... A, about that, because I'm super curious, but also about kind of the tradition and the laws around secularism and politics in Turkey. Right. So, yeah, it is actually important to go back to, like, you know, a little bit of political history in Turkey to understand Please. the context that Erdogan emerged and since then has been dominating Turkish politics. As you suggested, they founded AKP in 2001, and this was actually an, kind of an offshoot of an earlier uh, Islamic party tradition in Turkey. So Erdogan and some other, you know, high levels, uh, you know, the founders of this party were a member of an Islamic party called Welfare Party at the time that was closed down by the Constitutional Court again on the basis of their actions. The literal term is like, you know, becoming a focal point of uh, anti-secular actions. And after that, another Islamist party was founded immediately. 
and when they were there were elections within the party who the you know chairman was going to be the younger wing of that party that included Erdogan and you know his fellow uh, party members uh, challenged the leadership which is something usually unthinkable within the tradition of Islamist parties in Turkey. Uh, so that was something new, but also kind of expected because it was brewing between the old guard and the younger new generation that was more enthusiastic in terms of bringing some reform into how they wanted to perform politics because they thought the old ways and old methods just kept failing. Okay. So after that challenge, they were really successful. The challenger was actually the, you know, the younger wing fielded Abdullah Gül, which was the previous president of Turkey before Erdogan, Erdogan's long-term uh, friend that had a falling out later on. So he challenged as the representative of the younger side of the younger part or the younger wing of the Islamist tradition and got a, a very important amount of votes, which suggested the change was coming. And in the meantime, uh, the Constitutional Court closed down this new party, too, because they figured, well, this is just the same party with the same members with a different name. So the old decision still applies. So we are going to uh, shut this party down as well. So they took this as an opportunity and did not join uh, the efforts for creating another uh, Islamist party that followed the same tradition, but instead uh, wanted to found their own party, which is AKP. So AKP promised a change. They claimed and signaled to the wider audience that they were not political Islamists anymore, that they would respect the secular you know, context of this country, secular constitution, they were merely conservative Democrats. That was the identity, that was the label that they chose to introduce themselves to the voters. And they toned down with their own previous arch, uh, hardcore political Islamist rhetoric and rather engaged in a much more democratic, much more progressive, even left-leaning, liberal-leaning rhetoric. And it paid off early. Hi, it's Professor Floros. I'm interrupting our conversation to answer a question that got away from us. I asked why Erdogan didn't become prime minister when the AKP came to power in 2002. Here's the story. When Erdogan was mayor of Istanbul in 1997, he recited a passage of a poem with militant religious imagery, the quote being, the minarets are our bayonets. Because of the enforced secularism of Turkish politics, Erdogan was accused of inciting religious hatred. He was forced to resign as mayor of Istanbul in 1998, and after being convicted for inciting religious hatred, he served four months in prison in 1999. This imprisonment barred him from holding political office in the future, but after the AKP gained power in 2002, the laws were amended to allow him to serve despite his imprisonment. He became prime minister in 2003. So at the time of the founding of the AKP in 2001, did the constitution prohibit 
strictly Islamist parties from competing in the political process? Yes. Uh, so you can't, you know, outright have Islamist party because, you know, the in, Turkey is a strictly secular nation that follows this French notion of laicite. Uh, so it's, you know, restricting the influence of religion in public domain. So this idea of religion really does not mix with state affairs. Uh, so it doesn't, it isn't even like a passive kind of attitude, but actively suppressing and getting rid of religion from uh, the public domain. So it wasn't the case like in the U.S. Uh, that was respectful towards uh, and, you know, agnostic towards religion, but rather an active policy towards keeping the religion away from the public domain as much as possible and keep it uh, as a private affair. And that, of course, resulted in a lot of uh, rights violation. Observant Muslims in Turkey were discriminated against, particularly women with uh, headscarves would not be allowed to work for the government and would not be able to attend uh, colleges. There were instances in some campuses that they would have to go through security check in booths and had their headscarves forcibly removed. So Turkey has gone through these dark moments and Erdogan was in his party and still is kind of a savior for a lot of conservative people for being able to change uh, this face of Turkey's secularism and secular tradition and opening it up to include more conservative lifestyle. So the problem wasn't that. The problem was that actually it has become that they started forcing only this kind of lifestyle onto the public, or at least that is the feeling and you know, step by step rising tide of conservatism and delegitimizing secular lifestyles mm. through various means and prioritizing conservative uh, lifestyle and pretending that this is the only legitimate way how a Turkish lifestyle should look like, that has become an issue. Uh, but again, this was basically how the secular politics were being conducted at the time. Uh, and AKP was born out of uh, a resentment towards these policies. It's just that the earlier political Islamist party tradition was too radical Mm. to attract enough voters to kind of let them change these policies. So AKP adopted a much more milder rhetoric and used democratization as a tool rather than uh, making Islamic references. So they used democracy and democratic values to change the system and they did, and they did get a lot of support in doing so. Okay, and they were also pro-European Union, right? Because Turkey yeah. had applied for membership of the EU in 1987, um, was recognized as a candidate in 1999, and under Erdogan and the AKP actually started accession negotiations with the EU in 2005. But talks have stalled 
since 2016. And basically, since 2019, the talks have been officially suspended to join the EU. So was that also part of the appeal of the party at the beginning was we want to get into the EU and we're going to make the necessary reforms that will allow us to meet the accession requirements and become a member? Yeah, that was a very important uh, rhetorical point at the time. Uh, So we've talked about the context that brought these uh, electoral results uh, in uh, the recent presidential elections, but it is also important to talk maybe a little bit more about the context that brought AKP in the first place. Uh, So we've covered uh, the secular policies that cause a lot of resentment in a a major segment of the society. But also Turkey was uh, suffering a lot from economic crisis in 2001. The old um, members of the political arena was all corrupt and they had very uh, low trust. So AKP kind of banked on this. So the political arena needed a new party with new faces and AKP offered that. So European Union came in very handy because like going through all these incompetency and the economic problems that Turkish people had to suffer, European Union membership offered kind of a blank page for a new start. And, And of course, a lot of people expected Turkey would become a wealthier nation through the accession uh the EU. And AKP used this, of course. But maybe more importantly, however, EU conditionalities, even just to start the talks, required a lot of uh democratic reforms. Mm-hmm. And those democratic reforms coincided with the interests of the AKP. That required reducing the role and involvement of the military mm. uh, from politics, uh, which is a traditionally very touchy subject because uh, military since then had always been a very protective of the constitutional nature of Turkish democracy. So a lot of political scientists refer to Turkish democracy back then as a tutelary democracy. So the military were the kind of the guardian Mm -hmm. of the entire nation and the democracy. So they would draw out the red lines uh, where you could not pass uh, beyond those, but you're free to conduct politics within these uh, red lines democratically. So it was a very democratic uh, political environment in that sense, in terms of competition, in terms of fears, contestation of political parties. Uh, But of course, a lot of people were also excluded from it. And when parties or the government strayed outside those red lines, the military would overthrow them, right? There were a series of coups in Turkey's history, overthrowing governments who the military felt had gone outside the lines. Absolutely. And sometimes they just signaled, sometimes they just uh, used the threat of coups, Hmm. like change this policy or else. Mm. And, you know, there are instances where the political parties did like not dare to see the else. So they either resigned or changed direction, which the military tried to do that on AKP2 back in 2007. Oh, 2007. Yeah, 2007 by releasing 
a memorandum that they put on their web page. So I told you about Abdullah Gül, the previous president who was Erdogan's uh, longtime political partner and friend. Uh, so the idea of him becoming a president really offended this military elite, and only on the grounds that he had a wife uh, with headscarf. They thought she was not really uh, fit to be a first lady representing Turkey at that stage. Okay. And that was literally the point where they drew, drew the line and put that memorandum saying that military was not happy. The army was not happy with these talks and ideas uh, or rumors of him becoming potentially the president. And AKP immediately stood on their like you know stood their ground and responded in a very fierce way just they did not back down uh and they called for snap elections and this principled stance resonated with the turkish voters the first time uh when they uh, ran for elections akp won close to 35 percent of the votes that election they won, won more than 47 percent of the votes uh, because people just did not want that kind of intervention from the army anymore and that principled stance again resonated with people uh, so yes Turkey has you know had a long history of army's involvement in politics uh, but I think I digressed a little bit from the original point <laughs> <laughs> that's okay we were talking about how the for the EU accession uh, yes. they, they needed to rein in the power of the, exactly. of the military. Exactly. So, you know, EU requires uh, this influence to be curbed through uh, constitutional measures directly or deliberately assigning uh, certain roles to army and that they cannot uh, go beyond that. So no involvement in politics whatsoever. So Turkey has gone through institutional changes and reforms that guaranteed those. Uh, and that meant armies decreased role in politics and they could not really intervene as they pleased. And that, of course, meant getting rid of one veto player mm -hmm. standing in front of AKP to kind of like gain access or gain more power over Turkish politics. Professor Floros again. Semi mentioned that the military in Turkey is a veto player, and I wanted to explain what that is. A veto player is basically a political actor whose assent is needed for policy change. Without their agreement, the change cannot take place. They effectively veto the change. So for Turkey, historically, the military served as a veto player because if the government tried to make changes, the military didn't agree with, they could stop the change from occurring, sometimes by overthrowing the sitting government to prevent it. This type of government overthrow is known as a military coup. Let's take another break. You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. Today I'm speaking with UIC political science PhD candidate Semi Patan. 
So do you think that AKP and Erdogan, at least at the beginning, were they sincere about wanting to join the EU? Or was it completely instrumental in the sense of, we need to get rid of the military as a check on our power, but that's also what the EU says we need to do to join the EU, so we're going to play along and say we're doing it for EU membership, but it's really just to get the military out of the way, and we have to make these economic reforms and these other political reforms, which will only be good for the country, which will help us build our power later. So were the accession talks and the reforms made cynical in the sense of stepping stones for their eventual power grab, or do you think it was, yeah, we actually want to become members of the European Union? That's uh, a very good question and long-standing uh, debate among uh, Turkish politics observers, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And the conventional wisdom is that they were uh, and they have been cynical the whole time. Mm-hmm. Because the you know the story goes that they just use this convenient excuse uh, that is EU conditionality, and that they, they had this uh, false facade. Uh, they just pretend that they were interested in democratizing Turkish politics. Uh, but instead, what they wanted was to get rid of all these guardrails or whatever mm-hmm. uh, in Turkish politics. I would call them veto players uh, and reduce their influence, which, yes, in absolute terms, democratic uh, reforms. Absolutely. Uh, but it also, as I suggested, even though they imposed these red lines, they were also kind of an important figure in Turkish politics in a democracy that hasn't matured yet. So they were like, uh, you know, again, guardians of that democracy. Mm-hmm. If anyone if were, were to stray away from it, they would intervene. And if anyone were to get too powerful, they would be the balancing factor. So mm-hmm. getting rid of that meant that there wasn't anything to balance the AKP's rising influence. Again, uh, on its own, absolutely democratic reform. That was absolutely needed, period. Uh, no involvement from army into politics is acceptable. Absolutely not. The way it played out, however, is that mm. AKP started to gain much, much more power. And then when they turn uh, more authoritarian, uh, it just meant that there wasn't another authoritarian power <laughs> to balance it out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> But the thing is, now this account is being challenged and being challenged by a a new book that just came out uh, from a brilliant Turkish politics scholar, uh, but also a scholar of the Middle East, Shebnam Gümüşçü from Middlebury College. She recently published a book that came out of Cambridge University uh, in March called Democracy or Authoritarianism. Islamist governments in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia that basically looked in, look into why this promise of uh, democratic politics by political Islamist party in the Middle East and in Turkey just did not play out well and failed. Uh, and she challenges this conventional wisdom that uh, they were all cynical since the beginning, this is what they all wanted. And instead, she looks into intra-party dynamics. 
What she suggests is that I'm not going to go into detail with about other cases, but in, in the case of Turkey, what she suggests is the AKP did start genuinely asking for uh, and wanting to democratize uh, this country through constitutional and institutional reforms. And there was a wing uh, within the party that really genuinely wanted these changes to happen. But another wing that was represented uh, and is still being represented by Erdogan, uh, more hawkish, did not really believe in these kind of uh, reforms just to democratize the country. So she looks at this intra-party struggle and focuses on this narrative to explain uh, this, uh, you know, outcome we're facing now. And she argues that what happened was that this reformist section of the party has lost and these more hawkish party elites just took over and completely altered the course of the party. And she traces these changes uh, over time. And again, focusing on this intra-party struggle, which I think makes a lot of sense. So these are two competing arguments about whether or not they were cynical or they were genuine. I do uh, buy this argument about intra-party politics so because it's really hard to plan out these things. Sure. And just like, you know, they play out exactly how you planned. Uh, yeah. That's really difficult. And her argument is also supported by the fact that a lot of people just defected uh, from the party and went their own way. Mm. And as they exited uh, the AKP, as the reformists exited the party, it was just the hawkish political elites yeah. that, were, that was available, basically. Uh, but also, we could argue that those reformists did not really put out a big fight, right? right? Yeah. So there's that. So side note, um, I went to Tunisia in 2018, I don't know, and met... Uh, Rashid Ganoushi right. of Anhada. And we got to ask him questions about the intentions of Anhada. And he himself was pretty convincing in his acceptance of a secular Tunisian state and wanting to provide a voice in politics for adherent Muslims in the country. But then he left the room. And then, like, his people stayed behind, and it was much less convincing <laughs> what they were. It, I, I, this is personally what I took from it was that the younger folks, because they respected Ganushi, would go along with his playing with the system, but that they would not continue that. Uh, when he ceased to be the head of the party, and I did mm -hmm. not, I did not keep up close enough. Like I don't follow Tunisian politics closely enough to know how that's going. Right. But I did, I did find that kind of interesting because people didn't, people in my group didn't believe Ganushi, and I didn't know enough mm. about Turkish politics to, or Turkish about Tunisian politics to like know he seemed sincere much more so than his right. some of his followers but anyhow 
I just I thought that was an interesting side note. To what well, I think a similar story can be uh, told about a Tunisian case. It's not our subject today, but uh, yeah, I I'm sure Ganushi had some progressive ideas uh, and certain visions about the Tunisian democracy that would you know encompass all sorts of uh, different lifestyles and you know protect those, but it just did not play out and. Again, in Anatta, there's also a group of people that are more reformist and there are more mm-hmm. traditionalists. Yeah. I wanted to keep this Tunisian side note in the episode, but I also realized that most listeners would have no idea what I was talking about. So here's an explanation as briefly as I can manage. Tunisia, a small country in North Africa, was the first country to emerge from dictatorship during the Arab Spring in 2011. The first elections after President Ben Ali fled the country were held in October 2011, and Enhada, an Islamist party with links to the Muslim Brotherhood, received the most seats. Though a moderate Islamist party, they joined with two secular parties to form a coalition government. Enhada was, and still is, led by Rashad Ghanoushi, who I met when I was in Tunisia in 2017, not 2018. The pandemic has really messed with time for me. So lots happened politically between 2011 and 2017, including Enhada stepping down from government in favor of a technocratic interim government who organized new elections, which brought in a secular coalition, though Enhada still uh, received the second largest number of seats. Ganushi became Speaker of the National Assembly in 2019, but left office in 2021 when the country's second elected president suspended parliament and ruled by decree. Side note to the side note, I also met the first democratically elected president, Beji Kaid Asebsi, on that 2017 trip to Tunisia. Asebsi died in 2019. For many years, Tunisia was praised as the only country to hold on to democracy after the Arab Spring, but its claims to democracy no longer ring true. After dismissing parliament in July 2021, President Kaya Syed increased his hold on power through a new constitution, which was approved in a referendum that was boycotted by two-thirds of voters. Parliamentary elections in December 22 and January of 2023 were also subject to low turnout, but there is again an elected assembly, which is headed by a female prime minister, the first in the Middle East. There's much more to my conversation with UIC political science PhD candidate Semi Patan, which will be in the next episode of The Politics Classroom. We'll discuss the 2016 coup attempt in Turkey and the 2017 constitutional referendum as well as a brief discussion of Turkey's foreign policy as a function of the increased authoritarianism in the country. I hope you'll join me. If you're interested in learning more about the topics discussed today, please check out the bookshelf section of the show's website, thepoliticsclassroom.org. While you're there, use the comment feature to tell me what you think of the show and if there are other topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. I'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and that's all I've got for right now. Class dismissed.